Chapter 5 The HIV Heresies A man living outside the circle of delusion, which imprisons most men, has a question of everyone he meets, usually asked silently. Can you get outside of yourself for even a split second to hear something you have never heard before? Those who learn to hear will enter a new world. Khalil Gibran I hesitated to include this chapter because any questioning of the orthodoxy that HIV is the sole cause of AIDS remains an unforgivable, even dangerous heresy among our reigning medical cartel and its media allies. But one cannot write a complete book about Tony Fauci without touching on the abiding and fascinating scientific controversy over what he characterizes as his greatest accomplishment and his life's work. From the outset, I want to make clear that I take no position on the relationship between HIV and AIDS. I include this history because it provides an important case study illustrating how, some 400 years after Galileo, politics and power continue to dictate scientific consensus rather than empiricism, critical thinking, or the established steps of the scientific method. It is a hazard to both democracy and public health when a kind of religious faith in authoritative pronouncements supplants disciplined observation, rigorous proofs, and reproducible results as the source of truth in the medical field. While consensus may be an admirable political objective, it is the enemy of science and truth. The term settled science is an oxymoron. The admonishment that we should trust the experts is a trope of authoritarianism. Science is disruptive, irreverent, dynamic, rebellious, and democratic. Consensus and appeals to authority be it CDC, WHO, Bill Gates, Anthony Fauci, or the Vatican, are features of religion, not science. Science is tumult. Empirical truth generally arises from the tilled, agitated, and upturned soils of debate. Doubt, skepticism, questioning, and dissent are its fertilizers. Every great scientific advance in history Every transformative idea, from evolution to heliocentrism to relativity, met initial ridicule from the panjandrums of scientific consensus. As novelist and physician Dr. Michael Crichton observed, consensus is the business of politics. Science, on the contrary, requires only one investigator who happens to be right, which means that he or she has results that are verifiable by reference to the real world. In science, consensus is irrelevant. The greatest scientists in history are great precisely because they broke with the consensus. There is no such thing as consensus science. If it's consensus, it isn't science. If it's science, it isn't consensus. Period. Specifically, the original hypothesis on AIDS is an illustration of how vested interests, in this case Dr. Anthony Fauci, 
using money, power, position, and influence, can engineer consensus on incomplete theories and then ruthlessly suppress dissent. The many thoughtful critics of Dr. Fauci's central canon offer various plausible but wildly divergent alternatives to the official orthodoxy that HIV alone causes AIDS. There is one issue upon which they all agree. During the 36 years since Dr. Fauci and his colleague, Dr. Robert Gallo, first claimed that HIV is the sole cause of AIDS, no one has been able to point to a study that demonstrates their hypothesis using accepted scientific proofs. The fact that Dr. Fauci has obstinately refused to describe a convincing scientific basis for his proposition, or to debate the topic with any qualified critics, including the many Nobel laureates who have expressed skepticism, makes it even more important to give air and daylight to dissenting voices. Even today, incoherence, knowledge gaps, contradictions, and inconsistencies continue to bedevil the official dogma. The unified chorus demanding blind adherence to that official dogma drowned out the lively public disputes of earlier years and ignored the clamor for scientific proof. An obsequious national media had consecrated the orthodoxy and anointed Anthony Fauci with an infallibility formerly reserved for popes. In the February 28, 1994 issue of New York Native, Nina Ostrom wrote an editorial titled The Canonization of Anthony Fauci. Anthony Fauci, the man who has so mangled and misdirected U.S. AIDS research that 13 years into the epidemic there is no clear idea of its pathogenesis and no effective treatment, was recently raised to near sainthood once again by the New York Times. Instead of responding to critics by answering common-sense inquiries, Dr. Fauci has cultivated a theology that denounces questioning of his orthodoxy as irresponsible, uninformed, and dangerous heresy. It's axiomatic that American democracy thrives on the free flow of information and abhors censorship, so Dr. Fauci's extraordinary capacity to ruthlessly silence, censor, ridicule, defund, and ruin prominent dissidents seems more congruent with the Spanish Inquisition or with Soviet and other totalitarian systems. Today, the First Amendment simply does not apply to Tony Fauci, says Charles Ortleb. Any scientist who disputes his official cosmology or any of the canons that promote the orthodoxy that HIV is the one and only cause of AIDS is dead in terms of the rewards and sustenance of science. Finally, many of the tactics Dr. Fauci has pioneered to dodge debate, bedazzling and bamboozling the press into ignoring legitimate inquiry of the credo, and undermining, gaslighting, punishing, bullying, intimidating, marginalizing, vilifying, and muzzling critics have become his mainstays for derailing skepticism about his mismanagement of subsequent pandemics, including COVID. 
So, without attempting to draw conclusions about the underlying HIV-AIDS disputes, it is worth reviewing the weapons Dr. Fauci honed during his natal struggle to construct and fortify a scientific theology. The loudest, most influential, and persistent challenge to the thesis that HIV might not be the only cause of AIDS came from Dr. Peter Duesberg, who in 1987 enjoyed a reputation as the world's most accomplished and insightful retrovirologist. Specifically, Dr. Duesberg accuses Dr. Fauci of committing mass murder with AZT, the deadly chemical concoction that, according to Duesberg, causes and never cures the constellations of immune suppression that we now call AIDS. But Duesberg's critique goes deeper than his revulsion for AZT. Duesberg argues that HIV does not cause AIDS, but is simply a free rider common to high-risk populations who suffer immune suppression due to environmental exposures. While HIV may be sexually transmittable, Duesberg argues, AIDS is not. Duesberg famously offered to inject himself with HIV-tainted blood so long as it doesn't come from Gallo's lab. For starters, Duesberg points out that HIV is seen in millions of healthy individuals who never develop AIDS. Conversely, there are thousands of known AIDS cases in patients who are not demonstrably infected with HIV. Dr. Fauci has never been able to explain these phenomena, which are inconsistent with the pathogenesis of any other infectious disease. Many other prominent and thoughtful scientists have offered a variety of well-reasoned hypotheses to explain these baffling fissures in the HIV orthodoxy. Most of these alternative conjectures accept that HIV plays a role in the onset of AIDS, but argue that there must be other cofactors, a qualifier that Dr. Fauci and a handful of his diehard PIs stubbornly deny. Prior to advancing his own theory for the etiology of AIDS, Duesberg methodically laid out the logical flaws in Dr. Fauci's HIV-AIDS hypothesis in a groundbreaking 1987 article in Cancer Research. Dr. Fauci has never answered Duesberg's common-sense questions. In his subsequent book, Inventing the AIDS Virus, Duesberg, in 724 riveting pages, expands his dissection of the hypothesis's flaws and outlines his own explanation for the etiology of AIDS. For those subsumed in the theology that HIV is the sole cause of AIDS, Dr. Duesberg's critiques seem so outlandish that they automatically debase anyone who even considers them. It's telling, then, to discover how much traction his arguments have among the world's most thoughtful and brilliant scientists, including many Nobel laureates, perhaps most notably Luc Montagnier, who first isolated HIV. To date, Dr. Fauci has been able to silence, but not to answer or to refute, Duisberg's thesis. I restate that I take no side in this dispute. It seems undeniable to me that the dissidents have raised legitimate queries that should be researched, debated, 
and explored. I believe public health officials have a duty to answer these sort of questions, and I yearn to hear those arguments in an energized debate. Dr. Fauci's aggressive censorship campaign and his refusal to debate arouse my suspicion and my ire. It brings to mind George R. R. Martin's observation that entrenched powers removed men's tongues not to prevent them from telling lies, but to stop them from speaking the truth. If any of Dr. Duesberg's revelations are solid, his story has momentous relevance today, as the removal of his tongue illustrates the capacity of the pharmaceutical cartel, in league with self-interested technocrats, to exaggerate and exploit viral pandemics, to foist toxic and dangerous remedies onto a credulous public, and promote self-serving agendas, even those with terrible outcomes, with the complicity of a fawning and scientifically illiterate media. Duisberg and others charged that by stifling debate and dissent, Dr. Fauci milled public fear into multi-billion dollar profits for his pharma partners while expanding his own powers and authoritarian control. The resulting policies, they say, have caused calamity to global economies and public health and vastly expanded the pool of human suffering. The first time that someone, Dr. Tom Cowan, a physician from Northern California, suggested to me that HIV was not the sole cause of AIDS, I dismissed the comment as ridiculous. I had watched many HIV-positive friends die of AIDS during the 1980s and 1990s. I personally knew two of the celebrities, Arthur Ashe and Rudolf Nureyev, whose pioneering deaths from AIDS shocked the world at the epidemic's dawn. It seemed self-evident that HIV was the culprit. I had no idea that the supposition was controversial. I have since learned that today, a disturbing number of virologists quietly doubt the theory that HIV is the sole cause of AIDS. To understand the skepticism by many of the world's leading scientific minds, we need to venture back through history and briefly down a very deep rabbit hole. That journey pulls the curtain back on a shockingly corrupt NIH culture distinguished by lacunae that most Americans associate with politics, not science, cutthroat ambition, backstabbing duplicity, and moral bankruptcy. In July 1981, CDC reported a unique outbreak of immune deficiency-related health problems in a group of highly promiscuous gay men in Los Angeles, New York, and San Francisco. A May 1983 science article by French Institut Pasteur virologist Luc Montagnier first identified a retrovirus that would later earn the name HIV. Montagnier believed he had detected signals of HIV in the lymph nodes of some of the AIDS victims he had sampled. After hearing a lecture by Montagnier, Dr. Robert Gallo, a blustering, ambitious National Cancer Institute researcher, entrepreneur, and homophobe, persuaded the Frenchman to send him a sample of the newly discovered retrovirus, promising to use his considerable influence with the journal Science to get Montagnier's work published expeditiously. Instead, Dr. Gallo stalled the publication 
to give himself time to cultivate and steal Montagnier's virus. With the help of other HHS officials, Gallo then claimed Montagnier's pilfered virus as his own discovery and used an imaginative and cunning retinue of subterfuges and intricate frauds to obscure his larceny. In his book Science Fictions, A Scientific Mystery, A Massive Cover-Up, and The Dark Legacy of Robert Gallo, Pulitzer Prize-winning Chicago Tribune reporter John Crudson meticulously documents Gallo's brazen flim-flam, perhaps the boldest, most outrageous, and most consequential con operation in the history of science. The book exposes Gallo as a mountebank who built his career poaching discoveries from other scientists and claiming them as his own. Scientists who worked for Gallo described his NIH lab where he presided over some 50 scientists and a budget of $13 million as a den of thieves. One of Gallo's scientists told Crutzen, it's hard to be an honest person in this place. She said she knew three employees who committed suicide. Gallo confided to a henchman that he liked to hire foreigners because if they don't do what he wants, he can deport them. Gallo's former mistress and lab employee, Flossie Wong Stahl, reported that Gallo voiced his craven need for the Nobel Prize and his bitterness at being denied the honor so frequently that it was practically a rhetorical device. It was natural that Gallo found a powerful and reliable ally in Tony Fauci. Gallo's proof that the cause of AIDS was a virus, as opposed to toxic exposures, provided the critical foundation stone of Dr. Fauci's career. This claim allowed Dr. Fauci to capture the AIDS program and its attendant cash flows from the National Cancer Institute and launched the project of building NIAID into the world's leading drug production empire. On April 23, 1984, Gallo recruited his boss, HHS Secretary Margaret Heckler, to lend credibility and weight to his dramatic announcement. Heckler took the stage before a packed scrum of international press. Good afternoon, she told the world. Ladies and gentlemen, first, the probable cause of AIDS has been found, a variant of a known human cancer virus. She pointedly added, Today we add a new miracle to the long honor roll of American medicine and science. Heckler's participation at Gallo's press event was important stagecraft because it gave the imprimatur of NIH's institutional gravitas to a theory that had not been subject to peer review. Only later did the public learn that NIH allowed Gallo to delay the announcement until he had personally patented an antibody kit that he claimed capable of detecting HIV. He had developed the test at taxpayer expense. Crudson writes that Gallo conspired with a CDC official, James Curran, to improperly certify Gallo's test as equivalent in quality to a far better test developed by Montagnier. Gallo would make himself a millionaire from his innovation, while fanning fears of the presumably deadly virus, which coincidentally drove sales. A subsequent lawsuit over Gallo's swindle by the French government ultimately forced Gallo to disgorge half his proceeds. 
Gallo's premature announcement pioneered a new strategy of science by press release that would become a familiar mainstay in Dr. Fauci's arsenal of narrative control, culminating in the COVID-19 pandemic. The journal Science did not publish Gallo's paper until over a week after his spectacular TV press conference. At the time, Gallo's tactic marked a severe breach of professional scientific etiquette. This gimmick assured that nobody could review Gallo's work prior to his proclamation. Both Dr. Gallo and Dr. Montagnier, who had devoted their careers to studying retroviruses, were cancer researchers. Before the appearance of AIDS, both men had vainly strived to implicate retroviruses as the culprit in leukemia. In 1975, before he ever published a paper on the subject, Gallo gained national headlines when he publicly announced his discovery of a human retrovirus, HL23, that he claimed caused leukemia. He told colleagues he expected to win the Nobel Prize for his detection of HL23 in human leukemia cells. He didn't. Major labs around the country were intensely interested in HL23, but when they requested samples from Gallo, he ordered subordinates to damage the infected cells before sending them out to make them useless for research by others. Leukemia incidence was exploding at the time, but ethical elasticity apparently insulated Gallo against qualms about purposefully delaying vital research during a global pandemic. Other scientists complained that they could not reproduce Gallo's success. Subsequently, two groups of U.S. researchers literally made a monkey out of Gallo's discovery, if not Gallo, by proving his HL23 virus was actually a humiliating laboratory contamination consisting of a melange of three viruses from a gibbon, a woolly monkey, and a baboon. Instead of a Nobel laureate, Gallo became a laughingstock. Undeterred by mortification, Gallo declared that a so-called HTLV virus, which he also claimed to have discovered, he had stolen the work of Japanese researchers, according to Crutzen, was the cause of AIDS. Puzzled that he could not reproduce Gallo's results, another AIDS researcher, working with gay patients, asked Gallo if the discrepancy was because Gallo might be studying a different risk group. Was your patient a Haitian, a hemophiliac, the scientist queried? It was a fucking fag, replied Gallo. When asked to address Duisburg's announcements, about the HIV-AIDS hypothesis, Gallo often dismissed Duisburg's objections because, Gallo suggested, Duisburg was gay and or mentally disturbed. Duisburg is straight and sane. Duisburg comes to meetings with guys with leather jackets and the hair and so on in the middle. I mean, that's a little bit odd. Doesn't it speak of something funny? These were the sorts of petty defamations that Gallo generously offered instead of argument, to defend his work. But Gallo's failure to demonstrate that he could find HTLV in the blood of men suffering from AIDS threatened to put the final nail into his naked Nobel ambitions. At the height of that personal crisis, Gallo learned of Montagnier's success. Unwilling to accept defeat by the French, he gulled the credulous virologist 
into sending him a sample, which he cultured on a substrate that, according to Crudson, he stole from yet another scientist. When he succeeded in finding signs of Montagnier's virus in the blood of gay men suffering from immune system collapse, Gallo rebranded it HTLV and claimed it to be the same virus he had lately discovered. Gallo's lab notes, obtained by the Chicago Tribune, show that Gallo renamed the French virus repeatedly, apparently to further obscure its pedigree. The following spring, Science published the four papers from Gallo's lab, upon which Gallo's celebrity as the Superman of AIDS entirely rests. The first paper reported Gallo's isolation of a so-called new virus from AIDS patients. Gallo's lab had apparently cultivated and rechristened the French virus. The second paper declared that the new virus had been isolated from a total of 48 subjects a finding that would go far toward proving that the virus caused the disease. Examination of Gallo's lab notes by the Chicago Tribune found no traces of these 48 isolates. American and French governments skirmished over which scientists discovered HIV, until the combatants agreed in 1987 to call it a co-discovery. The WHO delayed its response for two years, as Gallo employed a series of artifices to pretend that there were two different viruses. By delaying the announcement of the French scientists' earlier discoveries, Gallo stalled the introduction of a widely available blood test for the AIDS virus by about a year. During that 1983 to 1984 interregnum, thousands of hospital patients and hemophiliacs received tainted blood from blood banks and became infected with HIV, and many of the already infected unwittingly spread the virus. The Nobel Committee awarded Montagnier its prize in 2008, conspicuously snubbing Gallo, whose notorious ethical lapses were by then abundantly documented. Gallo's unsupported claims and sketchy conduct resulted in two U.S. government inquiries into his professional ethics, NIH and Congressional. Pulitzer Prize winner John Crudson's 55,000-word expose in the Chicago Tribune documenting Gallo's theft provided a withering portrait of Gallo as a sociopath and pathological liar who employed thieving felons to run his lab a pirate enterprise engaged in pilfering money from the federal government and swiping discoveries from other scientists. The Sturm und Drang around the competing claims obscured the fact that both cancer researchers produced scientific papers that did nothing more than suggest their retrovirus might cause AIDS. Montagnier always moderated his own claims that HIV was proven the sole cause of AIDS and would eventually disavow the theory. Recalling how public revelations about Bob Gallo's acrobatic chicanery during his efforts to link leukemia to HIV had nearly destroyed Gallo's career, Nobel laureate Carrie Mullis, who unfortunately died in August 2019, just before the COVID-19 pandemic, noted, HIV didn't suddenly pop out of the rainforest or Haiti. It just popped into Bob Gallo's hands at a time when he needed a new career. 
Duisburg later said, he stole the fake diamonds from Luc Montagnier. Pouring Concrete on Confirmation Bias But, like Dr. Fauci, Gallo had both the PIs and press in his pocket. NIH's mythical prestige lent Heckler's statement a near-religious authority. The medical establishment quickly embraced Gallo's scientific hypothesis. Suspending traditional skepticism toward government pronouncements, the press ordained Gallo's theory as indisputable doctrine and beatified Gallo as a saint. Says journalist and editor Mark Gabrish Conlon of Gallo's big press event, the conference was held before any of Robert Gallo's papers were published. Therefore, before any other scientists had a chance to review them and look at the evidence and ask, has he got it right or wrong? Gallo's announcement was a windfall for Anthony Fauci. Pinning the AIDS epidemic on a virus allowed him to divert the cascading river of AIDS money from the National Cancer Institute into NIAID's overflowing coffers. Dr. Fauci opened the floodgates of NIAID cash to develop new antivirals against HIV. He unleashed his kennel of grant-hungry PIs to concoct and test new drugs that would kill the virus. Remarkably, Dr. Fauci never funded to completion a single grant to explore whether HIV actually caused AIDS. Federal law requires that NIH's grant review committee be composed of true peers, independent outside scientists knowledgeable about a given proposal's subject matter, to assess the application on its scientific merit. Ignoring those laws, Dr. Fauci began populating these committees with his own PIs. Researchers who reliably supported Dr. Fauci's orthodoxy watched their applications sail through the approval process. But scientists seeking to research ideas that departed from official doctrine encountered impenetrable obstacles. In 1988, a veteran NIH awardee, Seymour Grufferman, had his first experience with the new regime. Grufferman, the former chairman of NIH's review committee, had submitted a proposal to study the phenomenon of chronic fatigue syndrome, a touchy subject potentially threatening to the dominant cosmology, since many of Dr. Fauci's critics believe that CFS is non-HIV AIDS. I never got scores like that before, Grufferman told Hillary Johnson, author of Osler's Web. My data sheets were atrocious. When he protested to Dr. Fauci, he recounted, Dr. Fauci was nasty. Dr. Fauci's tsunami of research money poured the concrete of confirmation bias onto Gallo's hypothesis. NIAID's PI Army welcomed the fierce new bug hunt around this novel medical mystery. Thousands of health science PhDs seeking government grants rushed to study the virus, historian Terry Michael recounts. Dr. Fauci's PIs became the fierce guard dogs of the pervasive HIV orthodoxy. Nobel laureate Carrie Mullis knew the effect of NIH funding on cementing official dogma. All the old virus hunters from the National Cancer Institute, 
put new signs on their doors and became AIDS researchers. Reagan sent up about a billion dollars just for starters, noted Mullis, who in 1993 won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for his invention of the polymerase chain reaction, PCR technique. And suddenly, everybody who could claim to be any kind of medical scientist and who hadn't had anything much to do lately was fully employed. The End of Science According to Mark Gabrish Conlon, the Department of Health and Human Services decided from now on we are only going to fund AIDS research that assumes that Robert Gallo's virus is the cause. Dr. Fauci will not fund research into any other possibilities. Therefore, those scientists who might have wanted to critique Gallo's papers would not be able to do so, at least not with anything supported by the federal government, which is virtually all science in this country today, from that moment on. For 36 years, Fauci targeted all federal grants toward the single pathogen theory of AIDS. The Little Emperor made NIAID the go-to agency for AIDS research grants and spent lavishly, so long as grant writers towed the official line about the purported viral cause of AIDS, the only hypothesis for which NIAID would provide funding. He used his awesome leverage to discourage inquiry into any multifactorial hypothesis. The PIs that he funded became his ideological commissars. The growing enterprise became the launch platform for his career as the most successful medical science bureaucrat in American history. One of the inevitable outcomes of this confirmation-biased research was the rapidly expanding definition of AIDS. Dr. Fauci's battalion of scientists implemented a wide-ranging HIV testing program using indiscriminate PCR tests capable of amplifying tiny strands of long-dead genetic debris billions of times. The PCR test could not identify active HIV infection. Mullis, who invented the tests, pointed out that the PCR was capable of finding HIV signals in large segments of the population who suffered no threat from HIV and had no live HIV virus in their bodies. Researchers naturally found harmless HIV DNA detritus in people with a constellation of other diseases. All those unrelated ailments soon became incorporated beneath the umbrella definition of AIDS. Individuals with Candida or Kaposi's sarcoma and a positive PCR test had AIDS. Those same individuals with a negative PCR would have Kaposi's sarcoma or Candida. Under this rubric, the AIDS definition rapidly metastasized to encompass a galaxy of some 30 separate well-known diseases, including Kaposi's sarcoma, KS, Hodgkin's disease, herpes zoster, shingles, pneumocystis carinii pneumonia, PCP, Burkitt's lymphoma, iosporiasis, salmonella septicemia, and tuberculosis, all of which also occur in individuals who had no HIV infection. Most people consider it blasphemous when you point out AIDS is not a disease, it's a syndrome. 
Paul Philpot, MS, editor, Rethinking AIDS, explained, It's a collection of diseases, and those diseases get called AIDS if they occur in a patient that the doctor somehow concludes is HIV positive. All of the diseases in the category called AIDS occur to people who are HIV negative. None of them are exclusive to people who test HIV positive, and all of them have causes and treatments that are well known. They're completely unrelated to HIV. So any of the diseases, when they happen to somebody who tested HIV negative, are called by their old name. But when they occur in someone who tested HIV positive, then they're called AIDS. In the hands of Dr. Fauci's opportunistic PIs, AIDS became an amorphous malady subject to ever-changing definitions, encompassing a multitude of old diseases in hosts who test positive for HIV. Asked to define AIDS in a 2009 documentary, Fauci said, When your CD4 count falls below a certain arbitrary level, by definition, you have AIDS. But how do we explain the many individuals who have low CD4 counts and no HIV? The growth of the AIDS pandemic was predictably explosive. Using PCR and expanded diagnosis, WHO estimates that HIV has infected 78 million people and caused 39 million deaths. Today, 35 million people live with HIV with over 2 million new infections each year. This loose diagnostic system and the gravy train of financial incentives for finding AIDS everywhere, guaranteed riches for institutions and individuals who signed on to Dr. Fauci's gold rush. The pharmaceutical multinationals like GlaxoSmithKline, minting enormous profits marketing antivirals to kill HIV, had little incentive to challenge Dr. Fauci's orthodoxy. Africa's AIDS Bonanza With grants from Tony Fauci, intrepid researchers quickly found that the contagion had somehow reached Africa and infected up to 25 million Africans, with no one having taken notice. Researchers, extrapolating from small cohorts with positive PCR results, used murky statistical models to report HIV had infected nearly half the adult population in some nations and forecast widespread depopulation of the African continent. None of the shrilly predicted depopulation has ever occurred, and most HIV-infected Africans showed no sign of illness. In those who were sick, the infirmities looked very much like the illnesses that doctors had previously diagnosed as malaria, pneumonia, malnutrition, leprosy, bilharzia, anemia, tuberculosis, dysentery, or infection with a grim inventory of pathogens and parasites familiar to doctors in Africa. Because HIV antibody tests are too costly for widespread use in Africa, the World Health Organization has since 1985 used the Bangui definition to diagnose AIDS based on clinical symptoms. WHO's enthusiasm for this loose, all-encompassing definition 
may reflect the early revelation that the AIDS plague loosened purse strings like no other crisis on Africa's beleaguered landscapes. The statistical picture of AIDS in Africa, consequently, is a sketchy projection based on very rough computer-generated estimates from the World Health Organization built on a highly questionable data pool, dubious assumptions, and grotesque exaggeration. Uncertainty prevails, even in those extremely rare cases when doctors actually performed HIV tests on Africans. Many diseases that are endemic to Africa, such as malaria, TB, flu, and simple fevers, trigger false positives. Duisberg and many other critics accused Dr. Fauci and an opportunistic pharmaceutical industry of taking this long inventory of ancient afflictions and recasting them as AIDS. It's undeniable that African AIDS is an entirely different disease from Western AIDS. Whereas AIDS in Western countries continued to be a disease of drug addicts and homosexuals, with women reporting only 19% of U.S. and European AIDS cases. In Africa, 59% of AIDS cases are in women, with 85% of cases occurring in heterosexuals and the remaining 15% in children. No one has ever explained how a disease largely confined to male homosexuals in the West is a female heterosexual disease in Africa. AIDS in Africa looks nothing like AIDS in North America or Europe, observed Duisburg to me. Africans were rarely tested with expensive PCR tests, so every unexplained death became AIDS. The clinical symptoms of African AIDS are high fever, a persistent cough, loose stools for 30 days, and a 10% loss of body weight over a two-month period. By that definition, a large percentage of Western tourists have AIDS while in Africa. The simple cure is to get on a plane back to New York, where no doctor would dream of bestowing an AIDS diagnosis based on that symptomology alone. After 1993, WHO added tuberculosis to the definition. Duisburg told me, it became a garbage pail definition applied to anyone sick with an uncertain diagnosis. Due to compelling financial drivers in Africa, AIDS is nearly always a presumptive diagnosis applied without any positive reaction to HIV tests, science journalist Celia Farber told me. Big Pharma, researchers, clinics, international health agencies beginning with WHO, and local governments conspire to keep this stunningly broad and generic clinical definition of AIDS in Africa, she explains. From the beginning, it was a signal for funding. They are all in on the joke because they are all helping themselves by skimming the unprecedented international funding streams that flow to African AIDS relief. AIDS is huge business, possibly the biggest in Africa, says James Shikwati in a 2005 interview with Der Spiegel. Shikwati is founder of the Inter-Region Economic Network, a society for economic promotion in Nairobi, Kenya. Nothing else gets people to fork out money like shocking AIDS figures. AIDS is a political disease here. 
we should be very skeptical. Former epidemiological director of WHO, Professor James Chin, in his 2006 book, The AIDS Pandemic, The Collision of Epidemiology and Political Correctness, admits unambiguously that the AIDS case figures for developing countries were massively manipulated in order to maintain the flow of billions of dollars. Dr. Rebecca Colshaw, Ph.D., a former HIV researcher and professor of mathematical biology and population dynamics at the University of Texas at Tyler, admits that the paradox of how a disease could cause both vastly different epidemiologies and symptomatic progressions in the first and third world was one of the irreconcilable problems that sowed her initial disillusionment with the HIV-AIDS orthodoxy. The African epidemic looks suspiciously nothing like the American and European epidemic, and closer inspection reveals it likely that this African epidemic is pure fabrication. The questions about widely divergent symptomology of this mysterious disease only amplify when we consider that WHO maintains 12 different descriptions of AIDS depending on national boundaries. In 2003, AIDS activist Christine Maggiore told documentarians, in 1993, in this country, we adopted a definition that caused the number of AIDS cases to double overnight. And part of that reason was for the first time we began counting people as AIDS victims who were not ill and who did not have any symptoms. They had a low T-cell count, and that's all. And T-cells are something that can fluctuate up to 100% in a given day. So based on a low T-cell count that year, the number of AIDS cases doubled overnight. And with that definition, there have been 182,000 Americans who are not ill, diagnosed with AIDS, who would not have AIDS if they moved to Canada. Because in Canada, they don't recognize that T-cell definition as a criteria for having an AIDS diagnosis. Many U.S. AIDS sufferers can become cured by crossing the border into Canada. No other disease is so subject to this sort of nationalism. Correlation is not causation. In May 1984, a month after his momentous press conference, Robert Gallo finally published his paper claiming to have discovered the HIV virus in science. He also explained in detail his rationale for linking HIV to the AIDS disease by reporting that he had found evidence of the virus in several afflicted gay men. Gallo reported a frequent detection and isolation of HIV from patients with AIDS and at risk for AIDS. Scientists were shocked to learn for the first time that Gallo had found faint traces of HIV in only 26 of the 72 AIDS patients whose blood he examined. That weak conclusion was Gallo's only basis for claiming that HIV might cause AIDS. It's axiomatic that correlation does not prove causation. There were many other viruses, including herpes simplex, cytomegaloviruses, 
and a range of predatory herpes viruses found with a far higher frequency in AIDS patients upon which Gallo could have just as easily blamed AIDS. A year earlier, Dr. Luc Montagnier also had only suggested, in his May 1983 paper in Science, that his claimed virus may be involved in several pathological syndromes, including AIDS. Montagnier, a brilliant scientist known for his integrity, had found evidence of HIV in the lymph nodes of 72% of the 44 AIDS patients he tested. Montagnier always remained tentative about claiming the weak correlation as proof. As early as 1992, Montagnier told Nature that HIV is a necessary but not, without the cofactor, a sufficient cause of AIDS. As we shall see, Montagnier's later statements indicate that his doubts about HIV's role in the etiology of AIDS continued to grow thereafter. Based upon Gallo and Montagnier's slender scientific needs, these seminal papers introduced the idea that a single discrete virus was causing the AIDS pandemic. Dr. Fauci has since routinely claimed that HIV was proven definitively to be the cause of AIDS by Bob Gallo here when he was at NIH. But critics argue that evidence in Gallo's article is far too anemic to support Dr. Fauci's characterization. Neither Gallo nor Dr. Fauci has ever demonstrated, using any of the conventional scientific proofs, that the HIV virus alone actually causes AIDS. Rather than allowing his HIV hypothesis to triumph in the marketplace of ideas, Dr. Fauci sent clear signals to the American press that debate on this theory could no longer be tolerated. In September 1989, Dr. Fauci broadcast an angry threat about journalists who dared to give a platform to Peter Duesberg. He ended with this warning and they should realize that their accuracy is noted by the scientific community. Journalists who have made too many mistakes or who are sloppy are going to find that their access to scientists may diminish. Dr. Fauci leveraged uncertain tests to paint AIDS as a widespread viral plague. Instead of using traditional methods for diagnosing disease based on symptoms, Dr. Fauci encouraged doctors to perform blood tests on both healthy and unhealthy individuals to diagnose AIDS. Since none of the available tests are particularly accurate, Dr. Fauci must have understood that his reliance on blood tests alone was likely to yield highly dubious results capable of dramatically overstating the spread of HIV. In the decade preceding the AIDS crisis, a wave of new technologies, including PCR and super-powerful electron microscopes, had opened windows on teeming new worlds containing millions of species of previously unknown viruses to scientists. Molecular genetics not only revolutionized biological science, but also made that science fabulously profitable. The lure of fame and fortune ignited a chaotic revolution in virology as ambitious young PhDs scrambled to inculpate newly discovered microbes as the cause of old malignancies. Making such connections could be a 
profitable pursuit for enterprising young biologists and pharmaceutical companies. Under this new rubric, every theoretical breakthrough, every find became potentially the basis for a new generation of drugs. The opportunity to capitalize on the transfer of information transformed researchers into entrepreneurs and their discoveries into inventions. Science became big business. All this new equipment made science expensive, too expensive to perform without financial support from big pharma and big government. Researchers increasingly relied on Tony Fauci and drug makers to furnish and support their laboratories. Long-term funding became the first requirement of any new research. The researcher got his financing, and Dr. Fauci and the pharmaceutical company got proprietary rights on new discoveries. The self-interest of the researcher, the research institution, and the biotech company converged. Finance dictated the direction of research and, too often, warped its conclusions. Armies of scientists fresh from graduate schools joined the gold rush as Dr. Fauci and Big Pharma grub-staked brigades of young PhDs to prospect for novel viruses in the diseased tissues of sick patients. It was often unclear that the new viruses they found in alien tissues were actually causing the diseases, whether the tiny microbes were free riders colonizing decayed tissue or altogether innocent bystanders. Harvard's Jim Watson, who won the Nobel Prize in 1962 for discovering the molecular structure of DNA, fretted that the gold rush mentality was likely to scare off the sensible and leave the field to a combination of charlatans and fools. In 2001, alarmed by the precipitous decline in scientific discipline, 14 renowned virologists of the old guard published an appeal to the young, high-technology-focused generation of researchers in science. The Greybeards warned the young scientists against attributing culpability to a microbe based upon correlation without first understanding how a newly discovered virus actually causes the disease. Modern methods like PCR, with which small genetic sequences are multiplied and detected, are marvelous, but they tell little or nothing about how a virus multiplies, which animals carry it, how it makes people sick. It is like trying to say whether somebody has bad breath by looking at his fingerprint. Moreover, the evidence linking specific viruses to probable diseases was often subjective and not reproducible. The specific tests that researchers used to detect HIV had their own manner of additional deficiencies. The most significant diagnostic tools that doctors use to determine if someone is infected with HIV or not, and therefore whether they have AIDS, are 1. HIV antibody tests, 2. PCR viral load tests, 3. Helper cell counts, T-cells, or rather the T-cell subgroup CD4. Antibody test Gallo used an antibody test of his own invention to detect the presence of the HIV virus in several gay men. But what did his test actually prove? Gallo based his test on an antigen-antibody theory, which assumes the immune system fights against foreign viruses 
by generating targeted antibodies specific to that virus. In order to calibrate a test to recognize that specific antibody, the inventor must isolate the target virus and expose it to human cells in a Petri dish, which then generate the specific antibodies responsive to that virus. However, since it is unclear whether Gallo or any other researcher was ever able to isolate HIV, he took from his AIDS patients a sample of antibodies that he found in great abundance in their blood and made a leap of faith that they were HIV antibodies. Geneticists have pointed out that these antibodies may have been associated with tuberculosis or herpes or any of the many other pathogenic illnesses that multiply in collapsing immune systems. Indeed, Gallo's HIV antibody test also reacts to people with fever, pregnant women, and individuals who have overcome a tuberculosis infection. Therefore, it is unclear if the antibodies detected by his kit are really HIV antibodies. Neither Gallo's test nor any of the later developed antibody tests have ever proven that these proteins they identify as HIV antibodies have anything to do with HIV or any other retrovirus. The antibody test manufacturers recognize this deficiency with a caveat on their inserts. There is no recognized standard for establishing the presence or absence of antibodies to HIV-1 and HIV-2 in human blood. The same also holds true for the quantitative PCR-based HIV diagnostic test. It's not even a test for HIV, protested Carrie Mullis, who invented the DNA amplification technique commonly used to diagnose AIDS infection. Quantitative PCR is an oxymoron. PCR is intended to identify substances qualitatively, but by its very nature is unsuited for estimating numbers. Although there is a common misimpression that the viral load tests actually count the number of viruses in the blood, these tests cannot detect free infectious viruses at all. They can only detect proteins that are believed in some cases wrongly to be unique to HIV. The tests can detect genetic sequences of the virus, but not the viruses themselves. In 1986, Thomas Zuck of the FDA warned that the HIV antibody tests were not actually designed specially to detect HIV. Rather, numerous other germs or contaminants, including TB, pregnancy, or simple flu, also produce false positives. Zuck made that admission at a World Health Organization meeting but conceded that stopping the use of these HIV tests was simply not practical. He explained that, now that the medical community has identified HIV as an infectious, sexually transmitted virus, public pressure for an HIV test was just too strong. Finally, and most importantly, critics point out that Gallo's HIV antibody tests flipped traditional immunology on its head. Throughout all of medical history, a high antibody level indicated that a person had already successfully battled against an infectious pathogen and was now protected from the disease. With all other viral diseases, the presence of antibodies signals a welcomed immunity from the disease. 
But Gallo and Dr. Fauci's PIs suddenly began informing people that the positive antibody test was a death sentence. How could this be so? Dr. Fauci has never explained this inexplicable paradox. It gets even weirder when one contemplates Dr. Fauci's $15 billion HIV vaccine enterprise. Usually, regulators measure a vaccine's success by its ability to produce robust and durable antibodies. Now, for the first time in history, Dr. Fauci and Bob Gallo were asking the world to believe that antibodies were a sign of active, deadly disease. This begs the question, what is the HIV vaccine supposed to do? Mulling this conundrum, Reinhard Kurt, former director of the Robert Koch Institute, shrugged his shoulders in bewilderment during a 2004 interview with Der Spiegel. To tell the truth, we really don't know exactly what has to happen in a vaccine so that it protects from AIDS. Perhaps that is the dilemma that has frustrated Dr. Fauci's AIDS vaccine project for 36 years. PCR Testing Deficiencies The polymerase chain reaction technique, PCR, does not measure the actual live virus in the body, but the amplified fragments of DNA that are thought to be similar to HIV. But even if those fragments are amplified from the authentic HIV DNA, they could be from an old exposure, from a long-dead virus genetically similar to HIV, left over from an infection that has been suppressed by antibodies, perhaps decades earlier. The HIV test has never been validated, said Carrie Mullis. It doesn't show infection. It shows viral particles that may exist in millions of people. In the late 1980s, the biting and sardonic mollusk became Gallo and Fauci's most fierce critic, in fact, ridiculer. Mullis added, With the PCR method, mind you, not a complete virus, but only very fine traces of genes, DNA, RNA, may be detected. But whether they come from a certain virus or from some other contamination, remains unclear. Heinz Ludwig Sanger, professor of molecular biology and 1978 winner of the renowned Robert Koch Prize, stated that HIV has never been isolated, for which reason its nucleic acids cannot be used in PCR virus load test as the standard for giving evidence of HIV misdiagnosis of HIV infections by HIV-1 viral load testing, a case series, a 1999 paper published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Knowing the above, it's not surprising that every PCR kit includes a manufacturer's warning, do not use this kit as the sole basis for detecting HIV infection or similar labeling. Gallo's leap from correlation to causation troubled Mullis from the outset. PCR made it easier to see that certain people are infected with HIV, and some of those people came down with symptoms of AIDS, but that doesn't begin, even, to answer the question, does HIV cause it? Human beings are full of retroviruses. CD4 Tests
Similar deficiencies plague tests that count CD4 plus helper T cells. AIDS doctors look at low CD4 cell counts as the key marker for AIDS diagnoses. However, not a single study confirms this most important principle of the HIV-only theory, that HIV destroys CD4 cells by means of an infection. Furthermore, even the most significant of all AIDS studies, the 1994 Concord study, questions using helper cell counts as a diagnostic test for AIDS. The problem is the use of a surrogate endpoint, which is notoriously imprecise. Many studies corroborate the skepticism. One of these is the 1996 paper, Surrogate Endpoints in Clinical Studies, Are We Being Misled? Published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, the paper concludes that CD4 T-cell count in the HIV setting is as uninformative as a toss of a coin. In other words, not at all. Mullis added, Now, is there a test that can definitively tell you if you are infected with the virus? What is that test? The party line, at all costs, or else. Critics of the HIV-AIDS hypothesis invariably cite Koch's postulates as the most profound embarrassment for Gallo's theory. In 1884, Nobel laureate Robert Koch, the father of bacteriology, first outlined the classical methodologies for proving causation between a pathogen and a disease. Summarizing Koch's postulates for the Journal of Investigative Dermatology, Julia A. Segre wrote, As originally stated, the four criteria are, 1. The microorganism must be found in diseased but not healthy individuals. 2. The microorganism must be cultured from the diseased individual. 3. Inoculation of a healthy individual with the cultured microorganism must recapitulate the disease. And finally, 4. The microorganism must be re-isolated from the inoculated, diseased individual and matched to the original microorganism. Koch's postulates have been critically important in establishing the criteria whereby the scientific community agrees that a microorganism causes a disease. Virologists, and every trial lawyer and judge, consider Koch's four criteria the gold standard for proof that a particular microorganism causes a particular malignancy. The Problem of AIDS Without HIV Koch's first postulate requires that a truly pathogenic virus can be found in large quantities in every patient suffering from the disease. The failure of the HIV-AIDS hypothesis to meet this critical threshold remains one of Dr. Fauci's most exasperating dilemmas. For starters, Gallo claimed that he found HIV virus in fewer than half of the ailing AIDS patients from whom he drew blood. Furthermore, every one of the 30 discrete illnesses we now call AIDS occurs also in persons uninfected by HIV. In fact, AIDS commonly occurs in people who test HIV negative. 
If HIV is truly the only cause of AIDS, this should not be possible. Soon after Robert Gallo's historic announcement, doctors around the country and CDC officials started seeing patients with low CD4 counts and signature AIDS diseases like PCP and immune system dysfunction, but who tested negative for HIV. Many of the victims were white heterosexual women. Dr. Fauci and the CDC kept this awkward information secret. Fauci-funded AIDS researchers, Dr. Fauci's PIs, also kept mum when they encountered such patients. By 1992, media science writers also knew about these HIV-free AIDS cases, but they dutifully self-censored while awaiting signals from Dr. Fauci and the medical cartel. Lawrence Altman, the chief medical writer for the New York Times, confessed to Science Magazine that he did not break the story because he didn't think it was his paper's place to announce something without the CDC's go-ahead. Then, in the first days of the 1992 Amsterdam AIDS Conference, a naive young Newsweek reporter, Jeffrey Cowley, innocently reported a cascade of cases of non-HIV AIDS that he uncovered during quiet confessional conversations with Dr. Fauci's AIDS researchers. Several scientists confided to Cowley their bewildered alarm at the large number of AIDS patients who were uninfected with HIV. Cowley's report almost precipitated the collapse of Dr. Fauci's entire carefully fortified HIV-only theology. The patients are sick or dying, and most of them have risk factors, Cowley reported in Newsweek. He described a dozen such cases of non-HIV patients with AIDS-like symptoms, including brain lesions, corresponding cognitive deficits, chronic aggravation of herpes viruses, depleted C4 cells, PCP pneumonia, and immune system collapse. What they don't have is HIV. The Newsweek article shattered the taboo. Conferees took the public disclosure as a signal that they could now discuss the previously verboten subject of AIDS patients without HIV. Dr. Fauci's researchers, gathered in Amsterdam an ocean away from his heavy hand, suddenly began sharing their own stories of AIDS without HIV across the United States and Europe. With the floodgates opened by Newsweek threatening to sweep away Dr. Fauci's official orthodoxy, Dr. Fauci raced out to Andrews Air Force Base with CDC AIDS Task Force Director James Curran and flew to the Netherlands on Air Force Two on a mission to quell the uprising. Curran, the head of the CDC's AIDS division, had famously conspired with Gallo to take the antibody patent from the French. But by the time the two bureaucrats arrived, the horse had left the stable. Dr. Fauci and Curran had to sit through a series of rollicking conference sessions as mobs of reporters, mutinous scientists, and enraged activists besieged them with case studies and unanswerable questions. Public health regulators, physicians, and researchers expressed indignation that Dr. Fauci hadn't come clean with them. Many physicians caring for AIDS patients were furious that the government agency had not informed them about the non-HIV AIDS cases. Curran confessed 
that the CDC had known about these cases for years. He feebly protested, These are not cases of AIDS, reasoning with circular gymnastics that they couldn't be AIDS, since the definition of AIDS requires the presence of HIV. Dr. Fauci weakly reassured the gathering that he would soon resolve the crisis. The New York native reported that Dr. Fauci, the little man with the compensatory ego, looked like he was going to have a nervous breakdown in Amsterdam. We kept waiting to see him curled up in a fetal position and crying hysterically, desperate for forgiveness, desperate to create a smokescreen to make everyone forget how he has elbowed every critical question about HIV out of the way. Dr. Fauci was trying to sell himself as an open-minded scientist. He was telling people, don't panic, don't panic. In the weeks following the Amsterdam conference, the number of cases identified in the United States alone continued to grow almost daily. Within a few weeks, the escalating cascade forced CDC to admit to 82 certified cases in 15 states. It was a pitiful underestimate. Duisburg sent a letter to Science offering to provide a list of references to more than 800 HIV-free immunodeficiencies and AIDS-defining diseases in all major American and European risk groups, along with references to more than 2,200 HIV-free African AIDS cases. Duisburg afterward identified more than 4,000 documented AIDS cases in the peer-reviewed scientific literature in which there is no trace of HIV or HIV antibodies. This number is impressive because Dr. Fauci had cultivated strong institutional deterrence to such descriptions and because formal scientific papers never described the vast majority of AIDS cases. In an editorial for the Los Angeles Times, Steve Hymoff allowed that reports of AIDS without HIV would appear to signal at least partial, temporary vindication of Duisburg. Describing Duisburg as the unofficial leader of the revisionists, an international star of virology long before anyone heard of AIDS, and not just another conspiratorialist, Hymoff observed that Duisburg's arguments have the ring of common sense. If there is even a remote chance that Duisburg is correct, and the latest reports increase that possibility, then the powers that be must leap into action. New York native publisher Charles Ortleb commented, It should have been the end of the HIV theory, an absolute proof that the CDC had gotten the definition and cause of AIDS wrong. The fact that HIV-negative AIDS was also occurring in chronic fatigue syndrome patients, CFS, fortified suspicions of many virus experts that AIDS and CFS were part of the same neuroimmunological epidemic. A large contingent of HIV-AIDS critics, although not Peter Duisburg, had been clamoring that CFS and AIDS were a single disease, neither caused by HIV. To derail this lethal heresy, Dr. Fauci had set the compass for the medical community's reprehensible dismissal of CFS as a psychosomatic illness. Following Dr. Fauci's lead, doctors dubbed CFS as yuppie flu, 
characterizing it as a neurotic affliction among women genetically unequipped for high-pressure corporate jobs that suddenly opened to them in the 1980s, coterminous with the lockstep pandemics of AIDS and CFS. A September 6, 1992 Newsweek article by Jeffrey Cowley asked, AIDS or chronic fatigue? Though Cowley took some heat for the article, he was merely voicing the quiet suspicion among many of Dr. Fauci's own PIs that non-HIV AIDS was actually CFS, and that CFS was simply another name for AIDS when it occurred in heterosexuals who tested negative for HIV. As more cases come to light, Cowley observed, it's becoming clear that the newly defined syndrome has as much in common with CFS as it does with AIDS. Tony Fauci moved quickly to silence this existential threat. Three weeks after the Amsterdam riot, the CDC sponsored a special meeting at its Atlanta headquarters, inviting the scientists reporting HIV-free AIDS cases. In attendance was a doleful Cowley, the Newsweek journalist, by now on a short leash with a choke collar. In a brazen move to explain away the anomaly of AIDS without HIV, Dr. Fauci declared that the unexplained AIDS cases represented a new disease. To avoid suspicion that his new disease was, after all, CFS, Dr. Fauci labeled his discovery idiopathic CD4 plus lymphocytopenia, or ICL. In this tongue twister, idiopathic means of unknown source. It might also have been Dr. Fauci's ironic play on the word idiot. But such was his wizardry that everyone just swallowed it without questions. The press meekly nodded at his circular reasoning, like religious zealots jotting down the words of an infallible pope. For the record, I believe that HIV is a cause of AIDS, but Dr. Fauci's acknowledgement of non-HIV AIDS shows that causation is more complex than the official theology. Dr. Fauci had somehow resuscitated his theory from certain death by erecting an arbitrary wall between AIDS with and sans HIV. Because there was no evidence the mystery illness was contagious, Dr. Fauci hazarded a guess to the tractable reporters that the blood supply was probably safe. He offered no evidence to support this assurance, and the kowtowing media requested none. That was more than enough for Cowley. Cowley, the Newsweek reporter, almost lost his career, Charles Ortlib told me. Newsweek published a remorseful article, and Cowley stopped reporting on AIDS cases without HIV or even Dr. Fauci's new disease, ICL. Then, on August 18th, New York Newsday revealed that two of the non-HIV AIDS patients had chronic fatigue syndrome, reigniting the dangerous controversy. Dr. Fauci rushed to appear on CNN's Larry King Live to reassure the general public that the new illness was not a threat to people outside the AIDS risk groups. Writing in the New York Native, Nina Ostrom described Dr. Fauci's interview with King. King began by asking Fauci to describe what he thought was happening 
in the mysterious AIDS cases in which patients develop severe immunodeficiency and types of infections suffered by AIDS patients but are not infected with HIV. Fauci kept saying that between 20 and 30 such cases had been identified. Dr. Fauci knew that CDC had already confirmed 82 cases in 15 states, and Duisburg had found thousands documented in PubMed, the NIH official peer review archives. And because such a small number of people were affected, it really was nothing to worry about. Fauci said it wasn't clear that these cases represented a new type of AIDS. These patients' immunodeficiency could, he stressed, be caused by something other than an infectious agent. Fauci speculated that the cases might not even represent a new illness, but that increasingly sophisticated testing of people's immune systems was turning up what could be background immunodeficiencies, whatever that is. Ostrom described Dr. Fauci's awkward denial when one caller to the show asked whether the new mystery illnesses had anything to do with chronic fatigue syndrome. Fauci stated emphatically that it did not. Fauci was clearly uncomfortable talking about chronic fatigue syndrome, Ostrom reported, and couldn't quite figure out where to look, so his eyes darted everywhere. The show ended with an angry call from a physician in the Midwest who treats AIDS patients. He demanded to know why Fauci and other health officials had not informed physicians about the cases of non-HIV AIDS before the information appeared in Newsweek. Shouldn't the doctors know about this before the mass media, the doctor asked sarcastically. Fauci became very defensive, asserting that it had only become clear in the last couple of weeks that the non-HIV AIDS cases constituted a real phenomenon, and therefore there had previously been nothing to inform the physicians of. He did not look happy at the show's end. Ostrom added this observation. Fauci's good on television as long as he's being touted as President George Bush's hero or patted on the back for rushing toxic drugs through the approval process without adequate safety testing. But when reporters start acting like reporters, as they have since the non-HIV cases came to light, Fauci's thin skin gets him into trouble. He becomes defensive, condescending, and sarcastic. King initially scheduled Peter Duesberg to appear on the same show, and apparently canceled Duesberg at Dr. Fauci's insistence. The Problem of HIV Without AIDS Koch's first postulate also requires that the suspected pathogen should only be found in sick individuals and never in healthy individuals. It is therefore equally frustrating for HIV-only aficionados that widespread PCR use quickly revealed hundreds of thousands of individuals with HIV and no sign of illness. Dr. Fauci initially predicted that all of these individuals would die of AIDS within two years. Later, he doubled their life expectancy to four years, and then to eight. Then he stopped talking about these upcoming tragedies altogether. Today, even Dr. Fauci's most loyal clergymen acknowledge that there are over 165,000 Americans 
and millions of individuals globally who carry the HIV virus without ill effect. According to CDC estimates, approximately one-third of HIV positives in the United States do not know their status. If this is the case, Harvey Bialy points out, there should be a huge number of people dying suddenly of AIDS. This is not happening. In fact, the vast majority of those who test positive for HIV remain healthy for years. Duisburg and other critics argued that there is meager proof that people with HIV alone will not live a normal lifespan. Dr. Fauci has also taken energetic precautions to ensure that nobody study the prevalence of healthy HIV-infected people. In July 1996, Newsday reported that Dr. Fauci had suddenly aborted a $16 million five-year study of the phenomenon midstream. According to journalist Lori Garrett's July 11th story in Newsday, key HIV contract is killed, some see retribution at hands of NIH official, was the largest study on HIV-AIDS ever commissioned, involving research from over 100 scientists from leading institutions, including Harvard, the Aaron Diamond AIDS Research Center in Manhattan, Northwestern University, Chicago, Duke University, North Carolina, and the University of Alabama. One of the study's central purposes was to examine the question that Dr. Fauci apparently didn't want answered, why some HIV-infected individuals never succumb to AIDS. The five-year contract, which began in 1994 to fund this collaboration, formerly named the Correlates of HIV Immune Protections, or CHIPS, has no parallel in U.S. AIDS research. Dr. Fauci's action effectively scuttled a year's worth of work by about 100 independent scientists. Aaron Diamond's Dr. David Ho told Garrett, I'd like to see if Tony could find a contract anywhere in his portfolio that could match the productivity of this one. Newsday reported that the shocking cancellation was a retaliation against a group of younger scientists among this group who had signed a report, the Levine Report, that criticized NIH's policy of only funding research that supported Dr. Fauci's HIV-AIDS orthodoxies. This is payback time for Tony Fauci, said AIDS activist Greg Gonsalves of Treatment Action Group, the offshoot of ACT UP, formed to openly receive pharma funding. He told Newsday, it was an act of retribution by Tony Fauci, plain and simple. In reporting the incident, the New York native quoted NIAID insiders, New York native, July 22, 1996, complaining that Dr. Fauci had fostered a reprisal culture at NIH. They said that their boss's favorite expression was, what goes around comes around. Gonsalves called the cancellation a vendetta against the young scientists in the group who dared to ask for science-based funding strategies. It's just as likely that Dr. Fauci was searching for an excuse to terminate a study that threatened the entire HIV-AIDS paradigm. The Problem with Isolating the Virus Koch's second postulate 
is that the virus can be isolated from an ill individual and made to grow in pure culture. Highly respected scientists, including Etienne de Arven, argued that HIV has never been isolated or grown in pure culture. Both Montagnier and Gallo have periodically acknowledged this deficiency. Instigating Disease with Cultured HIV Koch's third postulate requires that the cultured microorganisms should cause disease when introduced into healthy individuals. Duisburg and others argue till this day that this proof is incomplete. In 1984, Montagnier acknowledged that the only way to prove that HIV causes AIDS is to show this on an animal model. No one has tried injecting HIV into a healthy human being, but scientists have stuck all kinds of mice and rats and monkeys and chimpanzees, and none of them got anything resembling human AIDS. No one has yet been able to induce AIDS by inoculating a healthy experimental animal with the cultured microorganism. There is no animal model for AIDS, agreed Nobel laureate for chemistry Walter Gilbert in 1989, and where there is no animal model, you cannot establish Koch's postulates. This failure by itself, said Gilbert, left such a gaping hole in Gallo's theory that he would not be surprised if there were another cause of AIDS and even that HIV is not involved. Evolutionary biologist James Lyons-Weiler argues that genetic sequencing of infected individuals proves sexual transmission of HIV. He also points to a 1991 judicial decision against a Florida dentist, Dr. David Acker, who allegedly infected five patients with a contaminated drill as definitive proof of Koch postulate 3. Subsequent investigations by 60 Minutes and others raised new doubts about the Acker verdict. Re-isolating the pathogen Koch's fourth and final postulate is that the microorganism must be re-isolated from this inoculated, experimental, diseased host. Duisburg argues that vigorous efforts by HIV-AIDS proponents to satisfy the postulates have all failed. In Jamel Tahi's 1996 documentary, AIDS, The Doubt, Professor Luc Montagnier admitted that after years of trying, no one had succeeded. There is no scientific proof. Montagnier therefore concludes that HIV causes AIDS. Koch's principles are still taught to every student of epidemiology, but his name is now a source of embarrassment rather than admiration and affection among AIDS researchers. From cases I have litigated, I know that entire court cases hinge on the capacity of the attorneys and scientists to persuade a fact-finder that the proponent of causation has satisfied Koch's postulates. It is the standard protocol for proving the causative relationship of a pathogen to a particular disease. Therefore, it came as a shocking revelation for me to learn that there remain possibly viable arguments that the HIV-AIDS hypothesis had consistently failed that standard.
In the American judicial system, that evidence would normally be sufficient to close a case. I am not opining on the science here. Viral load does not necessarily correlate to illness. Yet another acute embarrassment to Gallo's hypothesis is the problem of viral load. With most bacteriological and viral illnesses, increased viral load correlates with the progression of the disease and declines the patient's health. If HIV is the sole cause of AIDS, titers should be able to track an increase in viral loads as physical deterioration progresses. Traditional viruses such as herpes, influenza, smallpox, etc., only cause disease at very high titer, thousands or millions of infectious units per cubic millimeter of infected tissue. In contrast, HIV has proven barely to be found in AIDS patients, even in the final throes of illness. HIV can be detected, but only with difficulty because even the sickest AIDS patients simply don't have much virus to be found. And even more baffling, neither Dr. Fauci nor Gallo has ever credibly explained the fact that viral load from HIV is always at its greatest in the days immediately following infection. Logically, it would be during this period that the virus is most likely to cause devastating illness. And yet, the onset of AIDS symptoms almost always arrive decades later, an average 20 years following exposure, when viral loads are at their lowest. In 2006, a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association once again shook the foundation of the past decade of AIDS science to its core and incited apoplexy among many HIV-AIDS advocates. A U.S. nationwide team of orthodox mainstream AIDS researchers led by Drs. Benigno Rodriguez and Michael Letterman of Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland strongly challenged the claimed legitimacy of viral load testing, the standard method since 1996 for assessing patient health, predicting disease progression, and winning grant approval for new AIDS drugs. Their study of 2,800 positively tested people concluded in over 90% of cases, viral load measures failed to predict or explain immune status. Today, Rodriguez's group stands by its conclusion that viral load is only able to predict progression to disease in 4% to 6% of so-called HIV positives studied, challenging much of the basis for current AIDS science and treatment policy. The Lancet published a study showing that decreases in so-called viral load did not translate into a decrease in mortality for people taking these highly toxic AIDS drug combinations. The multi-center study, the largest and longest of its kind, tracked the effects of Dr. Fauci's antivirals on some 22,000 previously treated HIV positives between 1995 and 2003 at 12 locations in Europe and the United States. The study refutes popular claims that HIV meds extend life and improve health.
Can a retrovirus as elusive and rare as HIV cause deadly illness? Equally mysterious is the question of how an elusive, rare, difficult-to-find virus could be causing so much carnage. Peter Duesberg told me, if HIV was causing infections, you would never need a PCR, a machine that multiplies HIV segments a billion-fold, to see whether a person is infected. Infection would be as obvious as it is with active flu or active polio. The body would be swarming with microbes. Lauritsen argues, the virus infects very, very few cells, as few as one in 100,000. And on top of that, it doesn't even kill the cells it infects. Since HIV typically infects so few cells, that means Dr. Fauci's antiviral concoctions like AZT must kill many healthy T-cells in order to eliminate the few cells that are infected. It's worth considering that Dr. Fauci endorses administration of AZT and other chemotherapy concoctions for months on end or for as many years as AIDS patients manage to survive. Furthermore, I haven't found any evidence that HIV ever actually kills a T-cell. They seem to instead get along quite well. For this reason, critics argue the collapse of the immune system cannot be plausibly explained merely by the presence of HIV. Duesberg is not surprised at the gaps in the evidence. After all, he says, how can a virus be so destructive when it first enters the body, then turns around and plays dead for 10, 20, 30 years? Yet this is the orthodoxy. Dr. J. A. Levy, M.D., a leading UC AIDS researcher, posits, HIV is a kind of time-bomb virus that lies dormant in the body until, for some unknown and unexplainable reason, it modifies its own genetic structure and transforms into a fast-growing, virulent, deadly virus. Duesberg chuckles at this speculation. What kind of virus one day out of nowhere springs into action to destroy a person's immune system with no provocation? Gallo and Dr. Fauci originally claimed that HIV causes immunodeficiency by killing CD4 plus T cells. But even the most faithful acolytes no longer believe that HIV kills T cells in any way. Instead, they make what might seem to an outsider like a desperate pitch that HIV primes T-cells to commit mass suicide at some later date. Dr. Fauci's followers have advanced this Jim Jones hypothesis to explain the lack of evidence for any cell-killing mechanism that can be attributed to HIV. Duesberg laughs at this explanation. No virus has ever behaved that way. There are many shortcomings in the theory that HIV causes all signs of AIDS, admits Luc Montagnier. Among the most outspoken dissidents of the HIV orthodoxy are biologist Eleni Papadopoulos and physician Val Turner of the Australian Perth Group. Papadopoulos and Turner believe the particles Gallo identified as HIV are not even retroviruses, 
but rather are a class of cellular debris generated entirely from within the human body. Even Luc Montagnier admitted in an interview with the journal Continuum in 1997 that after Roman effort with electron micrographs of the cell culture with which HIV was said to have been detected, no particles were visible with morphology typical of retroviruses. A British-German research team in 2006 proudly reported that finally the structure of the world's most deadly virus has been decoded and that they had succeeded in photographing HIV in a 3D quality never achieved before. But after independent scientists inspected the team's paper, they found that the images depicted appear to be a series of nondescript clumps of debris ranging wildly in sizes and shapes. The study was funded by Wellcome Trust that has had from its inception a collaborative relationship with the pharmaceutical industry, including Burroughs Wellcome, the pharmaceutical giant that makes multi-billion dollar revenues from AIDS medications like Combavir, Trisavir, and of course, AZT. The Wellcome Trust is a kind of hybridized British version of NIAID and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It largely funds studies that tend to promote profit-taking by British pharmaceutical companies. Does Fauci's hypothesis fail Farr's law? William Farr was the British microbiologist who designed the accepted method for predicting the spread of a new virus across a naive population. Farr declared that every new viral epidemic follows the same intractable laws, spreading exponentially within weeks at most after the first infection, and then declining exponentially as it runs out of new uninfected persons. He declared that the rigid symmetrical rise and fall of death rates was so predictable as to be intractable law. The death rate is a fact. Anything beyond this is inference. New infectious disease epidemics can virtually all be reliably plotted in a predictable bell curve resembling an appearance Farr's graph from London's 1849 cholera epidemic. The Predictable Spread of Infectious Disease with Farr's Law Scientists who accepted Dr. Fauci's hypothesis that HIV was a new virus were initially confident that they could accurately predict a catastrophic spread in a naive human population. But all those predictions were wrong. At the end of each year, HIV's disappointing performance in imposing mortalities forced CDC to revise its estimates precipitously downward. Instead of a steep rise in infections, CDC's annual estimates of how many Americans are infected with HIV between 1986 and 2019 has remained fairly constant at approximately 1 million. HIV did not spread or kill at anywhere near the rate expected of a newly introduced sexually transmitted virus. The growth of HIV in Africa and the West does not follow the laws that have governed population-wide viral pandemic transmission throughout history. Since 1984, 
HIV has followed a steady monotonic point trajectory, spreading from 29 million in 1998 to 49 million in 2008. In Africa and elsewhere, the graph of AIDS has been a gradual, steady slope, following the population growth almost perfectly country by country without any of the widely predicted decreases in population. The Spread of AIDS in the United States Post-1985 Dr. Rebecca Colshaw, a mathematical biologist and former AIDS researcher, went from unquestioning believer to converted heretic. The initial irony that captured her attention was the paradox of the preventive cure. It is, she observes, indisputable fact that neither AIDS nor HIV have spread like they were predicted to. The predicted heterosexual AIDS explosion never happened, and even to mention this prediction now is almost taboo, as it is clearly an embarrassment to the AIDS establishment if HIV has not spread at all, but rather it has remained constant in the population since its detection. In Western countries, AIDS has never broken away from its original core pool of homosexual men and drug addicts. That limit defies the pattern of every infectious and sexually transmitted disease throughout history. By definition, there can be no viral disease that does not break out of risk groups, paupers consuming gays and those addicted to and frequently using hard drugs. This is especially true for HIV because, as Dr. Fauci's acolytes claim, this is supposed to be the most infectious virus that has ever existed. Assuming that is true, it is baffling that the virus did not frequently spread to women through sexual contact and did not affect all people all over the world equally. It is especially baffling that AIDS does not spread to prostitutes except those who use intravenous drugs. The fact that AIDS does not obey the accepted rules that have reliably governed every other plague known to mankind is, Duisburg says, just more evidence that HIV is an innocent bystander or a passenger virus. Enforced Consensus in a Sea of Dissenting Voices The press long ago stopped reporting voices of dissent, but you now know those voices are real. It's like dying in outer space, Ortleb told me. No one can hear you scream. But before questioning the orthodoxy became career suicide, some of the world's most prestigious scientists expressed such skepticism. It's worth revisiting some of those voices. We do not yet know how HIV causes AIDS, Dr. John Coffin of Tufts University, a member of the International Committee that named the virus, told the delegates to the 6th International Conference on AIDS in June 1990. Dr. Xing Lo, Director of AIDS Pathology of the United States Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, from 1986 through 2008, insisted that HIV could not be the sole cause of AIDS. In 2002, Dr. Bruce Evett, CDC's director of the Division of Hematology, lamented that the CDC went to the public 
with statements for which there was almost no evidence. We did not have proof it was a contagious agent. In September of 2004, Reinhard Kurt, former director of the Robert Koch Institute, one of the pillars of mainstream AIDS research, conceded in Der Spiegel, we don't exactly know how HIV causes disease. In 1987, physiologist and MacArthur Grant winner Robert Root Bernstein told ABC correspondent John Hockenberry that he does not believe that HIV is necessarily the cause or the sole cause of AIDS. I've had people tell me bluntly that I agree totally with your viewpoint that there are probably other things involved, that HIV can't cause AIDS by itself, that maybe you can get AIDS in the absence of HIV, but I'm not going to risk my million dollars of funding by saying that. Harvard Nobel Prize-winning molecular biologist Walter Gilbert told Hockenberry, The major thing that concerns me, like calling HIV the cause of AIDS, is that we do not have a proof of causation. That's our major reason for being concerned. Gilbert also said the problem with the HIV theory is the argument that all cases of AIDS are associated with the virus, and there is an inference made that all people with the virus will ultimately come down with AIDS. That's, of course, not known to be a fact. South Africa's pioneering AIDS researcher and physician, Dr. Joseph Sonaben, chimed in, The harm in the whole notion of the speculation being presented as fact is that if the speculation proved to be true, that means that research on whatever is truly going on has been neglected, and this, of course, with a disease like AIDS, can be translated into the loss of tens of thousands of lives. Says prominent New York AIDS doctor Michael Lang, assistant head of infectious diseases and epidemiology at St. Luke's Hospital, we've lost years in AIDS drug development because of the Gallo-Essex-Hazeltine-Axis boycotting other ideas. This chapter has outlined a meager skeletal description of just a few of the most common critiques of the hypothesis Dr. Fauci defends at all costs. Interested readers may find much more eloquent and thorough investigations in a number of books by various authors. Perhaps the best of these is mathematician Rebecca Colshaw's Science Sold Out. Colshaw was an AIDS researcher who slowly became disillusioned by the gaping chasms in the HIV-AIDS hypothesis and by government corruption in maintaining the orthodoxy. Her book offers a sociological explanation as to how the theory was anointed by the media and scientific community. Other important books are Duisburg's Inventing the AIDS Virus, Lauritsen's book The AIDS War, Osler's Web by Hilary Johnson, and Harvey Bialy's Oncogenes, Aneuploidy, and AIDS. I also recommend The Deconstruction of the AIDS article by Yale mathematician Serge Lang and an insightful chapter titled Fear and Lawyers in Los Angeles in Carrie Mullis's Dancing Naked in the Mind Field. Instead of civilly debating these dissidents and writers and common-sense questions posed by Duisburg and other critics, Dr. Fauci's strategy has been to exercise 
his frightening capacity to silence dissent and mangle reputations. History may credit him as the progenitor, even the inventor, of cancel culture. My purpose here is not to take sides, much less to resolve disputes that have so far defied resolution for decades. Rather, I'm sharing something few people have been allowed to know, that there is a dispute and that Tony Fauci has not allowed study that might resolve it. My hope is to chronicle Tony Fauci's role as high priest of an orthodoxy that today supports a multi-billion dollar global enterprise. Over the years, Dr. Fauci has deflected and evaded scientific debate and transformed theories into quasi-religious dogma, punishing and silencing dissent the way the Inquisition punished heresy. America's doctor has never given the American taxpayers or aid sufferers, 53% of whom are in the United States people of color, proof that AZT or its successive antivirals provide beneficial impacts on mortality. It seems fair, if not dangerous, to ask for that proof. Please go to the Children's Health Defense website for the acknowledgments and notes by chapter, updates to data, and new information that becomes available on any of the subject matter covered in this audiobook.